thank you for having me. It's always a privilege to be with God's people, and uh, thank you for listening. Uh, there's a lot of things you could be doing on your Father's Day morning, and you're here, and so uh, thank you for that. And uh, it is a privilege to be uh, with uh, this church particularly. Uh, I am excited about our uh, growing, it's, it's, it's nascent for us, just beginning for us, partnership uh, in Haiti. So we're, uh, we're excited uh, to be partnering along with you guys, and thank you for the example uh, you have set. Uh, let me pray before we uh, look at... Uh, at these verses. Our God, we, um, we've come here this morning and uh, I don't really know anyone here and they don't know me. And uh, God, we don't oftentimes know ourselves, uh, but you know us and you know our hearts and you know who has come in here with heavy hearts. You know who has come in here burdened down. Uh, you know who is here and is surprised to even be in church on a Sunday morning. And for all of us in all different stations of life that we find ourselves, I pray, our God, that you would meet us uh, through your word, by your Son, unto fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Presence. Presence, as uh, the New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says, is a delicious word. Presence. Presence points to one of our great gifts our great gifts. Nothing can take the place of presence. Not phone calls, not Facebook, not FaceTime, not gifts. Nothing can take the place of presence. What a child wants above all is the presence of her mom, of her dad. Ask someone who has lost a lifelong mate what they miss most and invariably the answer is their presence. When we are ill or when we are grieving, it's not so much soothing words that we need, but the presence of someone who loves us. Presence is what makes shared life together great, whether it's games or walks or concerts or vacations. What makes those things great is the presence of friends and family, those who love us. And God made us this way. We are created in the image of God, and God himself is personal. He is a relational being. And it's the Christian belief, the Christian contention, that when humankind fell into sin, we not only lost our vision of God and what is good and beautiful, we also lost our relationship with God. We lost the presence of God. And it's my contention and the Bible's contention that the rest of human history, after the fall in the Garden of Eden, are attempts to get back to the experience of the presence of God. Now, for this pulpit swap that's uh, been going on, I guess we're halfway through. Halfway through my sermon, we'll be halfway through. Uh, last week you had Aaron Baker uh, speaking of the love of God the Father. Uh, Jeff has been preaching on uh, the grace of Jesus and, for me, the fellowship of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, all from the end, the very last verse of 2 Corinthians. And uh, let me say several words. I don't know what Aaron said last week, but let me say several words about a benediction. It's a big fancy word. Benediction, it literally means a good word. And it is a blessing. A benediction is a blessing that is bestowed on the recipients of the letter or bestowed on worshipers at the end of a Christian worship service. It is not a prayer. 
It's not a prayer. It's not a sign-off. It's not like sincerely, Paul, you know. Uh, no, it is, a, it is a blessing that is bestowed, a good word spoken over. Uh, second thing about a benediction, this particular benediction is a summing up. A summing up of all that has come before in Paul's letter here to the Corinthians. Uh, it's not a tack on like, oh, by the way, grace, love, and fellowship. No, this is actually intentional, and it's a summing up of all that has come before. And I would make the argument that at some level, grace, love, and fellowship are a summing up of Paul's letters and of the New Testament and his view of the Christian life, grace, love, fellowship. And I can't make this point explicitly, but I think thirdly about this benediction, there's something progressive about it. Here's what I mean by that. That notice the order. If you're if you're familiar with the Christian tradition, there is something unusual about the order of this benediction. Because usually we think Father, Son, this is the name of this church, Trinity, right? You think about the Trinity, right? It's the name of your church. Uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But how does this begin? It goes Son, Father, Holy Spirit. And I actually think that the reason this is happening, the order has been inverted, as it were, by Paul, is that is how we experience God. When you come to faith in Jesus, it is first through the grace of the Lord Jesus, which demonstrates to us the prior and existing love of God, but it demonstrates to us that God loves us. How do we know Jesus, His grace? And this is all unto that we might experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit which as we shall see in a moment is the presence of God. So it's the grace of Jesus, which demonstrates to us the love of God that's been there all along, and this culminates in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. At some level, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is the apex of the Christian life, knowing God and being known by Him. So this morning I got a really simple outline. I want to define our term. It's not very, it's pretty pedestrian too, pretty boring. Uh, define our terms. I want to walk through the Bible on this issue, and then I want to apply it to our lives. So first let's define our terms. The phrase, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it just sounds so Christian-y. It kind of drives me crazy, honestly. Uh, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this just sounds like Christian people talking. We could be listening to Christian radio right now. So the first thing I want to say is, the, what is the Holy Spirit, okay? The Holy Spirit. Now, Christians believe, and you know this, again, it's the name of your church. We believe in one God who exists in three persons, not three gods, one God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's a mystery, okay? It's interesting to me that, uh, you know, Judaism is very famously a radically monotheistic religion, a monotheistic religion, one God. And when you come, and Christianity comes out of the Old Testament Judaism, and Christianity asserts the Trinity— like in verses like this, but it actually never defends it or never explains it, which is actually somewhat shocking that a person like Paul, steeped in monotheistic, monotheistic religion, one God, would just all of a sudden come to understand, oh yeah, there's three, three persons. I mean, it's actually a little bit shocking. The Holy Spirit is not a it. A per, it's a, Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is powerful, but it's not a power. It's not like the force. I mean, you know, uh, come to me, Luke. It's not, it's not like the force, okay? It's a powerful person. The Holy Spirit is a powerful person. So that's the Holy Spirit. Second uh, word we need to define is fellowship. And I wonder what you think. If we were to do a word association, fellowship, like what would come to your mind? Like if you're a J.R.R. Tolkien fan, you might think the fellowship of the ring, right? The first trilogy in the Lord of the Rings. If you're a Christian of a certain generation, you actually, when I say the word fellowship, you actually think of the coffee hour after this service. 
Uh, for me, I don't know why this is. This says something weird about my upbringing, but when I think of the word fellowship, what comes to mind is a campfire and people singing around it, okay? Fellowship, that's what I think of. Honestly, it's a rich word that, again, I think needs redefinition. And uh, some of you may know, if you've been around the church for a while, that the Greek word is koinonia. It's one of those Greek words that kind of gets bandied about, you know, uh, koinonia. Um, but there's multiple ways to translate it. Uh, fellowship, of course, is one. Sharing in, participation. Uh, communion, a lot of ways to translate it. Interestingly, in this phrase, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the hardest word to translate is of, O-F. I mean, translators don't know what to do with it. The version we just read, the English Standard Version, says fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the New English Bible translated fellowship in the Holy Spirit. J.B. Phillips says, it, it, it translates it this way, the fellowship that is ours in the Holy Spirit. My favorite is the King James. I love the King James. The communion of the Holy Ghost. I love that. I love the Holy Ghost. Uh, my favorite translation is probably, I think the most accurate, is actually the footnote to the New, uh, new RSV, the NRSV, which says that it's translated the sharing in the Holy Spirit. I think for modern ears, that's probably the best translation, the sharing in the Holy Spirit. Now, the words may vary, fellowship of the Holy Spirit, but they're all getting at this idea of experiencing the presence of God via the indwelling of the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Experiencing the presence of God via the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it's my contention this morning that that is not just the heart of biblical religion, experiencing the presence of God. But experiencing the presence of God is the longing of every human on this planet, every one of us, all seven billion. Because there's a longing in every person's breast to experience transcendence, communion with the transcendent, to experience the presence of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So we've defined our terms. Let's look. Let me back that up with uh, the biblical evidence. Let's walk through the Bible. First book of the Bible is Genesis. Uh, the Bible begins in a garden. Genesis chapter 2, the first book of the Bible. And Genesis 2, Genesis 2 depicts God talking to, relating to, being present with our first human's parents, Adam and Eve. Genesis 3 depicts God walking in the cool of the day, it says, uh, looking for Adam and Eve in the garden. God being very present with his people, literally with them. Now, Genesis 3, if you know the Christian story, that's when sin enters the world. And the first thing that Adam and Eve did when sin enters the world, it says they hid, this is the first thing they did. It said they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And after God addresses them, he removes them from the Garden of Eden, which is to say God removes them from his presence. The consequence and punishment of sin is the withdrawal of the presence, the experience of God. And in so many ways, the rest of human history, the rest of biblical history certainly, is an attempt to get back to get back to the presence of God, to experience, to feel God, the transcendent, longing to get back to Eden. 
So that's the first book of the Bible, Genesis. The second book of the Bible, Exodus. Several generations later, Moses is leading God's people out of their bondage in Israel. And they come to a time when the people of God have sinned. And in Exodus 33:15, Moses says this to God. God, if your presence will not go with us, God's threatening to leave them. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Translation, God, we must have your presence. But it's not just Exodus, and it's not just Genesis. The rest of the Jewish Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament, the presence of God is restricted to the tabernacle and later the temple. These were the places of worship. And it's in the temple and the tabernacle. The tabernacle is kind of a temporary temple. Uh, The places where God's special presence dwelt. And in both those structures, the tabernacle and the temple, there was an outer court, there was an inner court, and then there was an innermost court the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And it was there in the Holy of Holies that the special presence of God dwelt. And uh, it was only to be entered one time a year on the day of uh, Yom Kippur, uh, uh, the Day of Atonement, by one person, the high priest. And I love this. This kind of feels like a rock concert to me, which is kind of appropriate today. Uh, But the, the high priest, when he would go into the Holy of Holies, he wore bells on his robes, So they would know he was still moving and still alive in the presence of God. And he also had a rope around his ankle so that if he dropped dead, they could pull him out from underneath the curtain. The presence of God. It's not just the temple. It's not just the tabernacle. It's not just Genesis and Exodus. It's all throughout the Jewish scriptures. The Psalms regularly speak of longing to meet with the presence of God in the temple. Psalm 8410, a day in your courts, a day in your presence is better than a thousand elsewhere. To experience the presence of God is the longing of God's people. It's the hope of the Bible. It's the hope of all humanity. Trying to get back to the Garden of Eden, and not just for the innocence, but for the experience of the presence of God, the Holy. Let's keep walking through the Bible. We get to the New Testament, the Christian Scriptures, and the presence of God shows up in the person of Jesus. The Gospel of John says the Word became flesh. God became flesh. The way that Augustine said it is that he became what he was not, a human being, without ceasing to be what he was. He was God and he was man. God has become a human being on the earth in the presence of Jesus. Uh, made flesh. God made flesh. It seems like it couldn't get any better. God is among us. You could have touched him. You could have shaken his hand. He could have touched you and healed you of your diseases. God's presence is literally with his people, the presence of Jesus. But towards the end of Jesus' ministry, when he's talking to his disciples, he says the most remarkable thing. John 16, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage, it is better that I go away. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's been walking around with these guys for three years. How can it be better how can it be better for him to go away? Verse 7, the rest of it. Jesus says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The disciples had no idea what this meant. Uh, they were afraid out of their mind. Jesus is leaving us? I mean, we're going to get killed. But seven and a half weeks later, at Pentecost, at this point, Jesus has died. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended 
to heaven. The disciples are a huddled, fearful mass. They're literally living behind locked doors. They're so afraid. And then in power, God sends His Holy Spirit upon the disciples, His presence, a mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire. God is not just with His people anymore. He is within His people, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of the Jewish hopes for the return of the divine presence. There's no longer a need for a tabernacle or a temple. And something better than Jesus in the flesh is on offer. Something better than Jesus, God within, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now make no mistake, we do not have the presence of God in its fullness. We read the verse, Jennifer read the verse, Ephesians 1.14 speaks of the Holy Spirit as the down payment, the down payment of our coming inheritance. In other words, we have part of it. We don't have, oh, I made a down payment on my new home. I didn't pay for the whole thing. Uh, thanks the bank. But um, uh, we experience in part, we experience in part, we will one day know in full. We have a down payment. We have a taste it's summertime, so I love to go get ice cream, right? And my favorite thing about going to get ice cream is not actually the final order. It's the tastes, right? I know I'm going to get mint chocolate chip, right? But I'm going to taste the Rocky Road. I'm going to taste the cappuccino. And I'm going to even taste their, see how good their vanilla is, right? I'm going to taste as many as they'll let me taste before I make my final order. We have a taste because everything that is in the taste, it's not the full cone. But it is exactly like what is to come. And the Bible actually pictures for us what the presence of God in fullness will look and feel like. The Bible gives us this picture metaphorically. Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 and following. This is how the Apostle John, at the end of the Bible, pictures what the presence of God will look like in its fullness, when we know it in fullness at the end of time. And I saw no temple in the city, John writes, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. At the end of time, there is no temple to contain the presence of God. God fills the heavens and the earth with His presence. There's no need for a sun or a moon to light it because God Himself is the light. His presence will be full. You see, the presence of God in its fullness is the biblical hope and it is the biblical promise. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is the down payment. It is the beginning of the realization of the presence of God with us. So, when Paul just kind of haphazardly, no he doesn't, it's not haphazard at all. When he says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, that is no small thing. That is no, that's like the most profound ending to a book ever. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Well, so what? So what? We've defined the terms. We've walked through the Bible. Let's see if there's application to our lives. I think this is exceedingly relevant. We live in an increasingly secular, materialistic, individualistic world. And it's a legitimate question to ask. And some of you are asking it. Why bother with God? Isn't Christianity irrelevant. The early church, and especially the recipients of this letter, the letter to the church at Corinth, 
lived in a far more secular culture than our culture, far more secular than ours. They were literally pagans, okay? We know from Paul's letter that, six, that the sexual culture, the sexuality in Corinth would make Americans in 2016 blush. I'll use, I'll clean up my language, but you know what I mean. Uh, they had really wild parties. They had romantic relationships with young people. These are all accepted. They had romantic relationships within families. All accepted. All accepted. They would make us blush as 2016 Americans. And the church flourished and grew in that culture. The church flourished and grew in that culture. Why? Gordon Fee, again, he suggests two things. First, they clung to and proclaimed Jesus. Living, died, raised again. They proclaimed Jesus. And secondly, the Christians in Corinth experienced the life of the Spirit. They experienced the presence of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And that experience of the presence of God was more precious than their material possessions and more profound than their sexual encounters. You see, the experience of God's presence, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, was a radical an attractive alternative to a culture gone mad. It was a radical and attractive alternative to a culture gone mad, and the church grew and flourished in Corinth. Well, how was it attractive? How was it attractive? First, the presence of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, it humanizes you. It, it makes you more human. It makes you a better person. It is always the case, it is always the case that the presence of someone who is good and loving in your life makes things better. It's always the case. I was a bachelor until I was 39 years old. I loved being single. Played a lot of golf, okay? Had a very full life, but I love being married more. Uh, for starters, and no surprise with this sermon, I love the presence of my wife. Uh, notice I did not say conversation so much, but pres I love being with my wife. One of my fantasies, and mind you, it is just a fantasy at this point, uh, is that she will one day just ride in the golf cart with me while I play. We don't need to talk. We can just be together. I want her presence. But her, pre I can say that because she's not here, but her presence goes beyond giving me pleasure and comfort. It's beyond just the presence and the comfort. Her presence makes me better. It civilizes me. When she leaves town, you would think gremlins had moved into our house. I mean, within hours of departure, I devolve. I mean, like, like I become this cretin, like it's just ESPN on loop, and like there's, you know, stacks of, of, of pizza boxes. It's just, I don't sleep well. It's terrible. But it's not just the domestic comforts and the ways that she civilizes me. It's when she's gone that I miss the parts of her that challenge me, the parts that rub me, uh, push against me, uh, that help me to love other people, to see the selfishness in my own heart, to help me to know what I'm feeling and how to say it. Her presence makes me better. Her presence makes me more human. And Allison, my wife, she's not all-powerful, and she's not always with me, and she's certainly not within me. To a much greater extent, the Holy Spirit indwelling makes us better. He humanizes us. He, he makes us more who we were created to be. And he doesn't come in and change you. He makes Marshall more Marshall, and he makes you more you. He makes you your own best self, your own best personality. He activates our conscience. He stops us from certain things. He convicts us of other things, and he moves us towards other people in love by his very presence. 
So for starters, the fellowship of the, the presence of the Holy Spirit humanizes us. The second thing about the presence of the Holy Spirit, and I'll have to be a little bit brief here, is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit uh, leads to community, to fellowship. That's where we usually use this word. Now, I'm not enough of a film buff. Uh, I used to live in Los Angeles. I lived in Los Angeles for six years before moving to Winnetka. But uh, I don't watch many. I got a 10-month-old. I don't watch movies anymore. Um, uh, but I do know that a movie that I think is prophetic to our generation is The Social Network in 2010. It's, the, it's Aaron uh, Sorkin and David Fincher's movie about the founding of Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. And uh, a critic, a Rolling Stone critic, Peter Travers, I think he's correct to say that there's one particular film, uh, mo uh, scene in the film that is so poignant. If you saw the film, you'll remember this scene. It's the image of a solitary person, a solitary man, in a room by himself in front of his computer. And the critic says that has to resonate for a generation of users sitting in front of a glowing screen, pretending not to be alone. He goes on to say that in this movie, along with their scathing wit, there's an aching sadness to the Facebook, and it defines the dark irony of the past decade. Loneliness is a real and is a growing problem. There's a recent study that came out of uh, BYU and the University of Utah found that social isolation and feelings of loneliness increase a person's chance of death prematurely by 14%. That's twice the chance of premature death uh, from, uh, from obesity. You see, one of the great benefits of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is one another, is one another. You see, the presence of God in my life awakens me and connects me to others in whom he dwells. It connects me to others in whom he dwells. We hear something, we hear a heart language, we know that this person knows who we know, knows who we know and we are connected to them. I, if I had more time here, I'd love to, uh, to make some application to friendship. My experience of American Christians, uh, now ministered in four different states, is that we really have trouble with real friendship, particularly men, particularly men. Uh, Same-sex friendships are so hard, particularly for men. Uh, for women, it's a different struggle. Uh, but the whole presence of the Holy Spirit gives us the opportunity uh, to be vulnerable and to move towards other people because the Holy Spirit's within us and within them. But the third and final reason the presence of God matters for us is for our mission. You know, Pentecost is the day, if you know the history of the church, when the Holy Spirit entered the church in power. The story is told in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit comes down upon the believers, wind and fire, we've talked about this, and immediately what happens? The Spirit comes within them. You'd think they just kind of like, oh my goodness, let's continue this experience. Let's just let's, let's stay in this holy huddle. No! They were compelled to go out. It's interesting, you know, you have this great experience of God, literally wind and fire, literally. And they don't stay there. Like, I would like, let's, 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 let's hold on to this moment. But what do they do? They go out. Almost immediately, they're compelled to go out and bear witness to Jesus. They immediately, the Holy Spirit comes down, and they take God's message of grace and love to the world. Uh, Patty Griffin is a singer-songwriter, some of you may know. She has this wonderful lyric in her song, No Bad News. Uh, she says this, she sings this, I won't be afraid to be alive anymore. And we'll grow kindness in our hearts for all the strangers among us until there are no strangers anymore. And I love that line. We'll grow kindness in our hearts until there are no strangers anymore. As the presence of God indwells us, 
we are compelled by God's Spirit to go out, to turn to one another in loving community, and then that love spills out into the world, building God's kingdom of love. You see, friends, what goes deepest to the heart, the experience of the, uh, of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, what goes deepest to the heart goes widest to the world. What goes deepest to the heart goes widest to the world. And so Trinity Presbyterian Church here in Hinsdale, where is God calling you to go? I was, the first thing I was struck by in pulling your parking lot is the, is the gentleman playing cricket over here. Who's going to go learn to play cricket? Who's going to walk to your neighbors here? What goes deepest to the heart goes widest to the world. If you've been following, uh, there's at least one question you're asking. How? How do I experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? You know, Christ, uh, Presbyterians aren't particularly good about talking about experience. But here's the deal. God has made a way. God has made a way in Christ, and it's all in this benediction. All you have to do, all you have to do, so simple. All you have to do is learn to receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's just so, so just receive that. Just, okay, done. Uh, no, it's so hard, isn't it, to learn to receive. But I can say this, it does happen. It comes slowly. I can say this to you personally. You know, it, for me, growth has not been like, you know, strat you know, like rocket ship taking off. But I do know that dwelling in God's presence, spending time with God, with God's people, I can say that over the course of my life there is a growing humanity. A lot of that has to do with my wife. Uh, there is deepening community. There's increased vulnerability, and there's bolder witness, bolder mission. Learning to receive. Learning to receive. I don't know what the pattern in this church, but you may know, you've been in other churches. In the history of the church, there's a practice that at the benediction, which again is not a prayer, it's a blessing, of opening your hands. The minister raises his hands and the congregants open their hands to receive the benediction. And I think that's so instructive that week after week we hold open our hands because we don't really receive the grace, the love, and the fellowship, do we? But week after week we open our hands and slowly, by the awesome grace of God, it gets in and He changes us so that we might experience the grace of Jesus, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Amen. May it be so for all of us, for Christ's sake. Amen.